This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the film geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 25 for October 2012, and our topic is The Exorcist, the 1973 horror film by director William Friedkin. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. This is not a spoiler-free discussion. I know we say that pretty much every podcast, but that's especially true of this one because a lot of our discussion of The Exorcist focuses around the end of the film. And so if you haven't seen The Exorcist, you know, run out and do that before you listen to our podcast. All right, so Todd, one of the reasons we picked The Exorcist is because Halloween was coming up. We haven't really talked about horror at all on our podcast. And you had an opportunity to hear Scott Derrickson, who is a Christian director and who has himself done some horror films, uh, talk a little bit about horror this past summer. Can you give us a little rundown on maybe some of the things that he said and how you might apply them to The Exorcist? Sure. Um... Yeah, it was a, um, I was at a conference, uh, the Glenn Workshop, kind of a place where artists come who are interested in faith and product uh, placement, product placement, product placement. We were um, not paid for that product placement. Scott was leading a film seminar um, where he was taking a group of students through a bunch of horror films and they were talking about this and he gave a keynote address. He made several points. In some ways, it was kind of an apologetics for why would a Christian make horror films? Why would a Christian make horror films? And that's an excellent question, Ken. Certainly one of the things he is interested in is the way that arts that deal with darker subject matter can offer a place of transcendence um, for us to wrestle with things that happen in life that really are dark rather than not admitting that anything dark ever happens, saying, yes, these stories in our lives do occur, and that perhaps by telling the dark story we can transcend the darkness um, in that way by acknowledging it and not being afraid of it. So that's one pathway um, of, of that sort of thing. He also had this interesting sort of rubric that he discussed to greater and lesser success, I think, um, in terms of kind of characterizing different kinds of Christianity and, and its response to darkness or dark experience. and Or, or tales of darkness. Tales darkness of darkness in experience. art. Yeah, Ta yeah that, that's, that's a good distinction to make, darkness in art. Um, the one side is the fundamentalist uh, Christian approach, which tends to... He used the word deny. I, I think I would be more comfortable saying we'd like to just simply not deal with darkness in the arts, and, and which, which fits very well in the you know, most of fundamentalist sort of mentality is, is kind of an obsession with purity. And so you wouldn't ever want to be anywhere near 
anything dark. Sure, and they're they're sort of trumpet verses. Uh, I think it's Ephesians or whatever that says, you know, whatever is good, whatever is wholesome, right. think on those things. So we shouldn't really think about right this dark stuff. Of course, there's also the in that list the word true. Yes. So there we are. The more evangelical mainline Protestant response, um, Derrickson kind of characterized as a willingness to engage with you know, some darker subject matter, as long as the story was always one of conquering, where the Christian or the good guy would conquer whatever the darkness that is being dealt with is. So in a horror film, you know, certainly something like The Exorcist, a story of demon possession, as long as at the end of the film our heroes conquer the demon, we're on okay ground. All right, we're going to come back to that, because yes. we have some disagreements as to whether or not... <laughs> The Exorcist fits that rubric. Rubric. And then Derrickson, his, his third category was the Roman Church. And he felt that the Roman Church had more of a place in its theology for al the allowance for mystery. The idea that maybe the story doesn't end up with the good guy winning, but that's okay. Um, that somehow in this place of mystery where perhaps our faith comes out on top or it doesn't, there is still something there to learn from. There is still something there that's true about our experience on earth. And well, as we were talking in the pre-show that doubt is not the same thing as lacking faith and allows a more of a place for that. And in certainly some of their thoughts about the exorcist, perhaps this film fits more than that. It's certainly the representation of faith in the exorcist is squarely put into the Roman Catholic Christianity. So that was another big part of it. He did want to, he did ha offer some caution. At, even though, you know, he is, Scott Derrickson is a Hollywood director who ha is making his bread and butter making horror films. He, he was also careful to note C.S. Lewis in his preface to Screwtape Letters kind of said that there's two dangers whenever you're dealing with this kind of material. Um, one is that you take it way too seriously and begin to see a demon behind every tree. But the equally dangerous thing is to not take it seriously enough. And then he's striving for some kind of a balance. That's an interesting segue because I was actually thinking about screw tape letters as well. There is a place in screw tape letters where screw tape the senior devil answers a question from the junior devil about whether or not he, the junior devil, should make his patient, the man he is trying to tempt or keep from becoming a Christian, aware of his existence. And Screwtape claims, well, that decision's already been made. And the decision is we should hide or try to keep him in a state where he is oblivious to our mm -hmm. existence. The argument that C.S. Lewis gives, or that Screwtape gives, C.S. Lewis gives through Screwtape, is that if the human is aware of the existence of demons, the demon has, what the demon gains is the power of fear. You can play on his fears. Mm -hmm. But what the demon loses is the power of disbelief. And in many ways, Lewis, I think, rightly perceived that disbelief or unbelief was a greater threat to one's spiritual well-being or mindset that Satan was more interested in having people just not believing in the spiritual realm at all 
then was the threat of Satanism or demonic mm-hmm. possession or people believing in spirits but picking the wrong ones. I, I bring that up because really I've always thought of The Exorcist as being an important film for that very reason. It, it came out in 1973. I was born in 1966. So I was not old enough to see The Exorcist when it first came out. I probably first saw it in my teen years or in college. I, I know I read the book mm-hmm. in high school. And I think that it, it very much captures the, the zeitgeist of the time period, which was one of unbelief, disbelief, even amongst the representatives of the church within the film. I think the audience surrogate is, is Father you know, Father Damien. Yeah. And, and and he is more the psychologist than the priest. And he's reluctant to get into an exorcist because he doesn't really believe that exorcisms exist. And the path that he takes throughout the film is one of suspicion or disbelief that there must be a rational explanation to gradually more and more entertaining the notion that perhaps this is a real demon, could be a real demon, to a place at the end where he apparently has come to believe that it is actually a real demon. And I think that that is one of the real effective, important parts of The Exorcist, is that it it sort of unashamedly or unabashedly says, these things are real, they're not just movie monsters. This is supposedly a horror film about the ontological world that we live in, and even though Reagan is not a real person, and this may not be an actual specific demon, it is not set out as being an alternate world or a science fiction world or an imaginary world where things like this could take place even though they don't in our world. It's like, no, this is Georgetown, circa 1973, (laughs) and it makes you believe that something like this could happen in our world. Yeah. And I, and I think that gets us into you know another just you know point to think about is you know this film The Exorcist is you know one of these films that deals with horror the dark side of existence but it is also one that is very clearly tied to a spiritual question. When we were doing planning for this show we were throwing out all sorts of different ideas of different horror films to take and I think Within the horror genre, certainly the demon possession story is one kind of subgenre. I'm not sure, and maybe this is another show, that some other types of horror stories, how they fit in with some of the things Derrickson said. I'm not sure, you know, your Halloween, your your slasher serial killer story, how does that fit into all of this? Um, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get into today. Right. Well, I have two quick thoughts on that. I'd don't know, maybe we can <laughs> cut it or go to another show. I mean, one difference between The Exorcist and contemporary horror is the, is the fear generated by mechanical things or by the ideas. I think that you can take a film about just about anything and make jump cuts and spook music, and you can make someone scared. Or at least even with the word jump cut, you can make someone have a specific reaction that we've tended to right. label fear. Now, it's it's interesting to me that that I, I think there's a difference between startled and afraid. Yes. And so 
uh, there can be a number of horror films that I watch. I don't watch a whole lot of them, but I'm, I could watch Jaws. And that moment right before the shark comes out for the first time behind Roy Schneider, I jump every time. It's even though I know what's coming and I know sure. that it's and I think that has more to do with how it is filmed and the suddenness of the movement that is just psychologically making you startled. But I don't know how much of that is is fear. Whereas in, you know, a movie like The Exorcist or a movie like Prometheus, think about the scary scene in Prometheus. I won't give away in case you can go listen to our Prometheus podcast. But there is both the fear of what's about to happen and that's but it's the contemplation of the idea of the thing itself Mm -hmm. and not just that oh this person is staying you know sitting there and all of a sudden a big monster jumps out of the bushes and i think what we're talking about here is that distinction between a film that is at least trying to be art trying to be cinema and those are going to be the films that are really wrestling with ideas, as opposed to simple entertainment. That yeah, you, that you're just there for the roller coaster ride. And I think that distinction exists. We have to admit that it, distinction exists in horror yes. as well as any other genre. There are dramas that are lazy and mechanical, and there are dramas that actually engage ideas be they spiritual otherwise there are comedies that are lazy and rely on fart jokes or whatever that aren't really funny but know how to mechanically wrench a laugh out of you there are romances that know how to play music and aren't really romantic and i think sometimes maybe part of what derrickson was getting at is that there can be christians who say oh well just horror as a genre it's all mechanical and it can't actually be art but i think that distinction between art and commerce exists in horror just like any other genre and i I think it's important for us to make that it reminds me a lot growing up in the 80s in a an evangelical home the arguments that were raging at the time about music and it was the same sort of thing um there was a thought that a certain genre just of music just couldn't possibly but by its very nature, it was inherently evil. Right. And I think... Christian rock is an oxymoron. It's right. a contradiction. Whereas you see you know, films like The Exorcist that are certainly dealing with some pretty scary stuff um, and scary ideas. But it's being respectful. It's treating them as they are real. And that's, that's what's scary. And, you know, in as much as there are, yes, there are some you know, special effects and things that are pretty shocking on the screen, it's still... It is the reality of demon possession that is what is so frightening in this film. Right. The, the other sort of difference between The Exorcist and thinking about genres of horror, you know, I've yeah. quickly I've already touched on that, but before we get into The Exorcist specifically, is I think that when I teach literature, this is an oversimplification, but I say that the Gothic tradition in horror, you know, which really had its rise late 17, early 1800s, was, grew out of a time of intense rationalism and where the scariest things were the things that were unexplained. Yes. And so, in, but in that early Gothic, there was always enough of an enlightenment basis of the time period where things were scary for a while, but they always had a rational explanation at the end, right? Uh, right. The, the ghost ended up being a sleepwalker. The 
voices ended up being a ventriloquist hiding in the closet. Uh, there was always a rational explanation. And that's why I always tell my students the probably the quintessential modern gothic is Scooby-Doo. You know, the, yeah. the monster <laughs> always ends up being something that's totally plausible that's masquerading as a monster. Yes. I, I think then, I, I will say out of that gothic springs two streams in modern, you know, horror subgenres. One is that that gothic genre where I think I would put the exorcist in, which is the scariest things are the things in your head, in your imagination. And it's not important what the thing is. It's important how you feel and the feelings that mm -hmm. it generates. And the feelings that it generates are scarier during the time period because they're touching on things that you can't explain. And then modern or contemporary horror in which I would say the monster is real. In, in Halloween, in Friday the 13th, in, in some of the slasher movies or the genre Silence of the Lambs or right. uh, something like that, the notion is that this is all the more horrific because it's real, but it's not about an imaginary monster. It's not about an idea that is horrifying. It's about a thing that is actually horrifying. Right. And in some ways that, that thing then can be defeated if I'm going back to Derrickson's rubric of, you know, the evangelical sure. uh, of sort of like, well, okay. And, and it's much easier to take a concrete thing, a monster that is real, and defeat a real monster than it is to defeat fear or doubt or any of these other sure. things that give rise to fear. So I think that's another distinction between wh wh how the exorcist takes us in different directions spiritually in discussions than might some other horror films like Halloween or right. um, Hellraiser. Yeah. Any, or, yeah, there's a whole whole slew. So let's let's turn our attention from the general to the specific. To the specific okay. And, you know, talk about The Exorcist. Well, let me ask you quickly. I had seen The Exorcist before a couple times. I'm assuming you had seen it uh, before. Yeah. But we did just finish rewatching the film. Did you notice anything different? Uh, the reader response critic to me always yeah. wants to say first reading versus subsequent readings. There actually there was, and I and having just we we just got done rewatching, I'm not sure what it means yet. Um, but one of the things that I, I noticed on this rewatching was that there seemed to me in the filmmaking to be a real distinction in soundscapes. Yes. Um, throughout the Throughout the opening in, in, in Iraq and, and even at other places when we're back in Georgetown, in the human realm, there seems to be lots of noise. And it's a, it's a, it's a hammering, clanking noise. In the Iraq scenes, it's in there an archaeological dig, and so there's all these people digging with their pickaxes, and um, there's all this cacophony. Um, later in the film, when Reagan is going through all of her tests at the film, you know, the doctors are giving all these tests. They're very loud. The, yes. The the medical um, machines are just... And, and some of them I know in, in real life are loud. Mm -hmm. um, some of them, I think, were amplified to make this point. So there's the, all this cacophony of noise. And then there are these other stark moments when there's utter silence. And I don't know. It seemed to me that when there was the silence, that's when spiritual things were happening. I wrote down negative space, 
negative sound. And that horror... Interesting. Horror is one of the primary uses of what we call negative space and formal criticism. The negative space is the composition of the scene or the mise-en-scene that draws your attention to what's not there right. as a way of anticipating that perhaps if your, your eye's focal point or the dominant is in a place where nothing is there, uh, then you're expecting or waiting for something to come. A standard example might be a shot over someone's sh shoulder into a dark hall and you see a person approaching, yeah. or, but they don't see. But I hadn't really thought a whole lot about negative sound, which is that place where we have the same effect orally that we're used to hearing something and then we don't. And so that makes us more attentive or on edge to look for what's happening. The sound is very effective. In fact, I think the sound was sound design was one of the two Oscars, Academy Awards that the film won. It does use some background music to draw your attention, but actually not as much as I remembered. Mm. They, it, it's it's not constant. There are uh, there are shorter bursts right. uh, where that they, they seem to come suddenly and not. So I, I would agree with you. The sound was interesting. And I also agree with you that I wrote down hospital scenes slash torture. And mm, that yes. torture is a big subgenre of the horror. Yes. And it is interesting that part of this film is a comparison between the rational enlightened world and the medieval or primitive world that believes in spirits. Mm-hmm. But there is a kind of subtle reminder that for all of our progress in technology, that technology doesn't protect us from these horrific things. In fact, uh, some of the things that she goes, Reagan, the girl, goes through in terms of her tests are actually very hard to watch or as hard to watch as the exorcism. Uh, there's at one point in which one of the doctors suggests she needs to get another spinal tap and the mother is just like, oh my God, you know, I can't contemplate watching my daughter have to be subjected to one more, uh, one more of these tests. And so there is this sort of horror that naturally is building at seeing a child beat up and, mm -hmm. but the child beat up, you know, even before some of the worst of the stuff, the way the demon beats her up uh, if it is in fact a demon so i would agree with you on you know i would agree with you on that there's a much longer prelude and i don't just mean the scenes in northern iraq right uh, but there's a much longer prelude to her getting sick than than i remember uh where we're establishing all of the different characters it takes uh, it takes longer to get into the horror than i remember and i think that's a function of being 1973 mm -hmm. rather than you know contemporary well, and I also think some of that is the difference between this being a really serious film that's concerned about its characters and its ideas and a simple genre film. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a straightforward, careless genre film, yeah, is going to give us a few shots of the mother and child being happy together, and then within five minutes right. we're going to be having head spinning and vomiting and all this kind of stuff. I'm thinking about the house at the end of the street. Yes. And then I think this is more like a good half hour or so of establishing the situation. Mm -hmm. 
And introducing the themes, there's there's a theme with Reagan playing with the Ouija board that mm-hmm. she found that seems to not be significant in a way a modern film would be of like, yeah, that is the explanation, but invites you to, in a general way, think of the overarching trope of as we stop believing in spiritual things, we start dabbling in spiritual things without proper care precisely because we don't really believe in it right and uh, going back to screw tape letters again there's there's a point at the end of that letter that i mentioned where screw tape said you know the ideal state would be where we have not yet succeeded in making a materialist magician some someone who believe doesn't believe in god but does believe in spiritual forces that he would try to manipulate. And I think that the um, some more modern horror, we might get into how successful we are, you know, whether we're at a place now where, whether the exorcist has led to a place where we believe in spiritual forces. Uh, but I do think in Blatty's mindset, there was a progression that says you can't believe in the devil and not believe in God. And therefore, the devil is real, and so that's going to make people re-examine some of their materialist assumptions. And I right. don't know how true that's coming in retrospect, but I do think that the Ouija board scene sort of stuck out to me as a way of saying, not just like, okay, Reagan deserves this, or this is how the demon came into it, but this is your culture. This is the right. world that you live in, where so I, th- I think the quote is from... A movie called The Indian in the Closet. You should not mess with magic. You do not understand. <laughs> Don't go waking the sleeping dragon. Right, right. So, um, other other specific things, upon re- reviewing. Um, we- the only the other thing that I did find kind of interesting. I had totally kind of forgotten the fact that the mother, Chris, is a, a movie actress. And we get this whole thing in the beginning when she's kind of first introduced, where it's you know. She's a movie actress. We see her on set, and they're making a film at Georgetown, and it's about a bunch of kids protesting or whatever. But there was something about her being an actress that I and that they they play in it a lot in the setup. And again, it's one of these mm-hmm. things we're setting up that you know there's something phony about life, about her life, or I'm not sure. And you know, just that idea of you know they, they spent so much time on the filmmaking. Yes, that it kind of made me wonder is what. Is this is the film making a commentary on the industry, or is it more just this is our life that things are so? Is that staged? an excuse to give her a job where she's got a lot of money and we don't have to ask right. why is she out at work or you know, what's she doing? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, is it, she what, supposed to be part of a left leaning establishment that's not conservative and then has to run to the church? Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, the detective and. Father Damien have various conversations where they're they're always they're talking about movies throughout the film, and so I just thought it was interesting that film as a genre, as an art form, as a business, had its fingers all through the film. Right. The one scene that we see is of making the movie. It's set at a college. Right. Ellen Burstyn asks a question about, like, why is my character doing this? And the director very dismissively says, oh, maybe let, we could ask the writer. Maybe he's in Europe someplace. Yeah. 
in other words, just do it. That makes me wonder maybe part of what they're driving at is contrasting that production with the exorcism at the end and saying how much of the exorcism is theater, you know, is about production, is about going through, hitting your notes, Mm -hmm. you know, getting your lines, uh, hitting your marks, standing in the right place, waving things at the right time, and how much of it is about the theatrical elements and how much of it is like, no, the theatrics don't matter. It actually, the substance matters. It matters what well, you do. And what's interesting there is that the actual scene they're filming is this rabble-rousing group of students who are taking over a, a building. And Chris races and grabs the megaphone and is trying to stop them and says, wait a minute, can't you see that you are violating the very principles you say that you're standing for in order to accomplish whatever deed you're doing can work from within the system to and change that, the system but it just it stuck out to me that she was you know in in the film in the film within a film you know she's saying you can't violate your principles to accomplish your ends right and i don't and again it's these things it's like well what and is, that ha- that has <laughs> thematics towards the end you know towards the actresses well let's get into the ending yes. of the film because we had some disagreements it sounded like. The one review I've actually written of The Exorcist, and I'll link to it, was back before I was at CT or had one more film blog. I, I wrote a review. Uh, actually, I didn't write a review. I wrote a comment to someone else's review at a place called Christian Spotlight on Entertainment where I think The Exorcist had been re-released and someone wrote a review and described the film as, well, okay, it's very spooky, but it's appropriate for Christian's because it shows, and I'm going to echo Derrickson's rubric, the triumph of good over evil. Right. And I was like, well, no. <laughs> uh, the exorcism exorcism fails. Uh, the demon ends up being stronger than God. Uh, the exorcism goes on for 10, 15 minutes of intense screen time. Uh, they take a break. Uh, Father... Damien Karras goes out, and after he comes back in the room, we see that Father Marin is dead, apparently from a heart attack or from, you know, the physical strain or exertion. And Father Karras uh, is looking at the girl who is apparently possessed and laughing, and he begins punching her and choking her, and then says to the demon that he now apparently believes is inside of her, come into me. Uh, we see his eyes change color momentarily as though the demon is in there. He goes to choke her again. We see his eyes clear as though somehow or another Father Karras has gained control of his body. He is either flung out the window or voluntarily leaps out the window, uh, lands on the stairs, and before he dies is offered a final sacrament and passes away. Uh, and when the mother and detective rush into the room Reagan now appears to be fine yes okay is that a fair and accurate summary of the, the what happened that's at the what end? I saw okay so <laughs> my interpretation of that was evil that the exorcism failed and you said you weren't so sure that or that you have problems well, with the characterization of the word failed or the I, I wouldn't what do you disagree <laughs> with on well, I, I think I, I disagree both with the characterization that it failed okay. and that good triumphed. 
um, from the response you were talking about that you responded to. Um, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, the purpose of the exorcism was to deliver this child from the demon, it succeeded. Reagan is no longer possessed by the demon. But not as a result of the exorcism. The exorcism is not well, what freed her from that. What it, freed was, it, it was the priest coming and saying, come into me. Right. And, you know, I, I guess I'm looking at it as the priest... That's part of the exorcism? That's, you know, it, it, it was certainly a... It was a conscious choice on Father Damien's part um, in, in the scope of performing an exorcism. Now, I seriously doubt this would be part of the ritual. Right. Um, but... In terms of the idea of a priest caring for his whoever he has decided to care for, he took the demon upon himself. The girl is no longer possessed. So I guess in that sense, I'm saying, yeah, the exorcism worked. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not buying. I'm just saying, if I go to if I go to mass. And at the end of Mass, I stand up and I shoot you with the gun. Yes. The Mass hasn't killed you. The Mass isn't any part. I just, I, I killed you mm -hmm. at the end of a Mass or I went to a church. But, you know, that didn't have anything to do with the Mass. But you're not know? a priest and you're not in the midst of performing a ritual. Okay, so... If I'm a lawyer, if yes. I'm a prosecuting attorney, yes. and I am trying you for murder, and at the end of murder trial, the jury comes in and says, not guilty, and I say, I disagree, pull out a gun and shoot you, then you have not been punished by the system. You know, the, no. the court case says, that, that is me and my agency and not part of the... Sure. the I still think there's a difference okay. between you and a, a priest and a lawyer, too. So it's <laughs> a priest, a lawyer, and, and an exorcism, and a rabbi walk into a bar. And, and here's where I think yeah, earlier in the show, uh, we, you know, said, there's murky waters at the end of this, this film. I have no problem saying that. Um, is it a clear... You know, this is why I say I don't... You know, triumph is also not... An, I don't think that's an appropriate descriptor of what happens right. at the end of this thing. The girl, no, and I was disagreeing with that. I was right. saying, I was and, and, and as I'm saying, yeah. I mean, if my two choices are failure and triumph, I'm, you know, in, in typical Todd fashion, I'm saying no, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I still have a big question about, you know, part of what, and then we see this in scripture in terms of you know, when Christ casts out demons from the like the, the, the one guy, and then they say, well, where, where are we going to go? And he directs them into a flock of pigs, and then they jump over a cliff. There is this sense that the demon has to go somewhere. And, and certainly part of what the prologue in Iraq is supposed to be setting up, I think, is that this, this demon has been around for a very long time. And that, I mean, you know, even in, you know, in the midst of the exorcism, we see a flash of the same statue that was seen in. So there's this sense that this force, this demonic force, has been around for centuries and moves around and so it's in Reagan it moves to Father Karras who then whether and I think there is some room I think for ambiguity right. does Karras thro throw himself out the window 
is the demon. No, you, you're reading it as the demon went into Father Merit? Or Karen. Uh, Karis. Yeah, uh, but not nah, Merit no, just died. No, Merit just died. Okay, okay. yeah. And Damien does receive last rites at the end. His his other priest friend, who has established lives like right next door, has rushes over, gives the last rites. But, you know, where does the demon go from there? Is, I guess, one of right. the... I, I'm less concerned about that because... Well, for me, it ties you know, into your question about, you know, is this demon stronger than God? Right. Um, well, and now some people were going to say that's maybe just a larger question that is not an issue with the film because, you know, whatever reports there are of exorcisms in general, okay, I don't understand then, like, why is it that... If they come out, why do you need this whole ritual and to go through all of these things? Why can't you just say, in the name of Jesus, come out? Right. And I'm sure the answer to that has a lot to do with, you know, it's not a magical power and you know, making sure that, you know, you're protected against sincerity or messing up with things. Or um, I'm sure probably in the Roman Catholic tradition, it has to do with the sacrament and the powers of being a priest as mm -hmm. opposed to someone else doing that, that they're not magic words, that they're actual spiritual power, but at least it seems to me like, uh, with the exception of maybe one miracle in the Bible where Jesus restores sight to a man gradually, the power to bind or the power to have, you know, supernatural mm -hmm. power that's associated with, you know, God-given power, and, you know, I believe he says that the apostles' power to right. bind doesn't seem to be this sort of limited power if you go through all of these right steps when mm -hmm. we see the apostles performing miracles or uh, showing power. It, it doesn't seem to me to be this process thing. It just seems mm -hmm. to be like those people who have the power wield the power, and if you don't, you don't. Right. So, But that's a whole issue that I have with you know, questions or confusions about exorcism in general, not with this film. You right. know, well, and this is film's... this film in any way a realistic or accurate representation of anything? Well, I or, think I mean, it's... anything of the of the. I mean, I think exorcism. it's meant to be, you know, it's yeah. meant to be a realistic portrayal yeah. of what an exorcism would actually be. And, and I do find, you know, um, well, to go back to the, the talk I heard from Scott Derrickson, one of his previous films was The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which was based on some actual events. And he played us some tapes of mm -hmm. that had been made during the exorcism. That famous case that inspired in, in, the, the famous case, and you know, yeah, there was the strange voice speaking in other languages. It you know was creepy as all get out. Um, and yes, yeah, so, I mean, there is a. I think there is a, a, a spiritual question there about demonology. I guess is the what we would call right. it, and that. I don't know. I don't well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a general spiritual question that transcends the movie for me, which is like, okay, I don't, I can as a Christian, don't understand why exorcisms take as long as they do. Right. Right. Because I think if you have the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of Christ within you, why you know why can a demon resist that? Although, but again, saying I don't understand that is not saying the same thing as that can't be. Right. I mean, you know, even Jesus interacting when he says "come out," the demons seem to be resisting or trying to, re you know, mm -hmm. uh, trying to resist. So apparently, the, there's 
limited power to resist as opposed to conquer or, or, or overcome. Uh, getting back to just, you know, reading the end of the, the, the end, film yeah. and how it goes, uh, I, I think there are a couple of scenes or indicators that would seem to me to push toward Friedkin maybe wanting or pushing for a more optimistic ending. I had never really picked up on the scene that actually before Father Karras goes back in, he goes down and talks to Ellen Burstyn and she says, is it over? And he says, no. And it's like, is she, is, she says, is she going to die? And he says something like, no, yeah. and, you know, it's going to be okay. And that would, that scene would seem to me to support a a reading of the end of the film where he makes a conscious sacrificial mm-hmm. gesture, you know, hate to use that word Christ figure, but, you know, that type yeah. of, I am going to sacrifice myself in my own life to save someone else. You know, yeah. I will give her... Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. That, for, that for scene that. to me was very strong. And I had always more focused on a scene between Father Marin and Father Karras, in which Father Marin says, okay, we're the actual target. The demon's not mm-hmm. particularly interested in her. He's interested in you and your mm-hmm. uh, your loss of faith. And in that reading, that would seem to me to be like, okay, Father Karras falls into the exact trap that Father Warren right. warns him against, that the demon got exactly what he wanted, which was Megan was a spiritual equivalent of the hostage that you hold, and right. really I have no interest in, in, in that. Now, that scene was apparently in the extended cut or the version that I had never seen before, and the fact that, the fact that it was filmed and then cut suggests to me then that at least the, the meaning that, that Friedkin is going after or looking after it is much more of a, I don't want to say a triumphal one, but more towards a successful one or a successful yeah. re- resolution where order has at least been restored in, in terms of that middle ground. Uh, although I find that very unsatisfying just on a larger level because there are movies maybe like this one uh, like the movie Signs, which again, I won't spoil if people haven't seen the movie Signs, that always suggest, okay, a broader spiritual meaning comes from the fact that something bad happened to one person as a means of saving someone else. Right. And I'm like, okay, so does that mean that this person is more important than that person? It's okay, or we should be happy because this person was freed or liberated or saved. And I'm like, yes, but at the cost of someone else not being saved. And so I'm still in a roundabout way back to, okay, so is God not powerful enough to save anyone? Uh, mm-hmm. Why does Father Karras have to sacrifice himself right. in order to save Reagan? And isn't the fact that he does have to sacrifice himself an admission that the exorcism even in and of itself is not enough to save Reagan? Right. And unfortunately, I don't think the structure of the film helps you. No, because <laughs> because the entire you know first section of the film is all about Father Merritt. So we spend all this time with Father Merritt's, then he goes away. Um, then we get all of this stuff with the mother and the daughter, and the and the, then we get some parallel stories that are running with the priest and, and his mother, and then you know the mother and Reagan. Um, it, it's hard to tell whose story is the main story. I guess is what I'm getting at, and. 
so you know if we're going to say it's about the demon trying to go after Father Karras, I don't know. I don't know how much evidence there is for that, and you know, in as, as opposed to any other character, right? So, and so yeah, I just. I just yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, for me, Father Karras is the main character. Uh, I suppose for someone who views Reagan as being the main character, then there is a happy resolution, yeah. and, or you know, a happier resolution. I mean, Karras is the one that we get a, a full dramatic arc, and he's the one that, in the end, has that decisive action. Right. And so, I, I mean, I I lean towards him being the main character as well. It's just the structure of the film's kind of... Okay, but the, yeah, so that raises the question then, structurally, what's up with this whole preface with Father Marin? Exactly. Is, it, is Father Marin then a foil to Father Karras? I mean, is he sort of like the person that's like, I'm going to fight to the very end and not give up hope? Is he belief versus doubt or, you know, that somehow or another these people are, are foils. But mm-hmm. that does sort of raise the whole question of, I mean, it's I, my recollection of the book is that a big part of that preface was you know, where did this demon come from? Right. You know, that this demon somehow had been buried and somehow unleashed by the excavations of this uh, and, and I think know, that's the intimation of the film, except then the question is, how does this demon in northern Iraq find its way to this actress's daughter in Georgetown? Mm-hmm. You know, are we supposed to believe that the power of the Ouija board somehow collected it from someplace and transmitted it? Um, I don't know. Or, you know, if a demon can just travel spiritually over why this particular, you know, why this particular right. girl, which... Then, you know, then gets me back to well, part of this particular girl is that maybe my target was Father Karras, and I knew that he would come in contact or suspected that you know they He's would nearby. go to a psychiatrist and uh, he would be you know he would be nearby and and uh, you know I wanted to tempt him towards doubt or despair. And in some ways, maybe I suppose someone could make an argument that it's about the church in general. And the place where the church is at, as represented mm-hmm. by Father Marin and Father Karras, of moving towards unbelief and uh, disbelief. Because it always surprised me how many of the priests in the film, you know, particularly the American priests, right. are like, oh, we don't really believe in that anymore. There are no exorcists, and the church doesn't believe that. The church doesn't teach that. Oh, where would we even find an exorcist? Right. And, which is odd, because then as soon as he goes to the cardinal... It, the Cardinal's kind of like, oh, okay, well, here, here's the guy Let's we call. Let's go get Father Marin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe there's some commentary going on about Western cultures mm-hmm. or Western Christianity or, or the Western church. Or certainly they, it's a university priest, whether it's in that academic right. kind of rationalism versus versus whatever. Now, I, I mean, so, okay, I, I don't know that you convinced me, but you certainly made me more tolerable towards an ending of the film that isn't just saying, okay, how can inviting a demon to come into yourself be... My preferred reading of the film is still that probably because Father Karras is the one I most identify with, right? I have my own doubts or I have Mm -hmm. my own sort of intellectual grapplings. And, And so therefore... 
I don't know that I could ever do that, what he did, and I don't know that. It seems to me the essence of the power of the film is that this is real. These things are real. And I can't imagine anyone who actually believed the demon was real saying, here, come into me. Therefore, and even if it is real, and he just says, okay, I believe it because I, I don't really believe it, or I'm in that particular state, then it seems almost like accidental or coincidental, or, you know, the person who is successful is not the person who, who believes and understands. And from a spiritual or an intellectual standpoint, I, I'm always sort of like, well, knowing is always better than not knowing. Mm-hmm. And believing is always better than not believing. But maybe that's part of my Achilles heel, right? Maybe part of the film is, is sort of saying, you can be in situations where all your knowledge is not going to save you, where it's really just about your character or your decisions or your ability or your own faith to be able to deal with those circumstances that... And, and I think that's a very true message too, right? That at the end of the day we tend to be gravitating towards a kind of faith that's less about intellectually affirming the right doctrine, right. knowing the right answers to this question, and more about how does that in- answers affect your life and whatever you're willing to do. And and so I do think there's a lot of ambiguity there. There is. And, you know, another wrinkle I would toss in is throughout the film, we get this relationship between... Um, Father Karras and his mother, and and his mother dies, and there's another relative, I guess, that I don't know if it's a brother or an older brother or whatever, who seems to constantly be laying a guilt trip on Father Karras, basically saying, you know, you could have been a world-class psychologist if you weren't a priest, you could have had all the money to take care of her, you abandoned her, all this... N- kind of putting it all on him. And he seems to be taking some of that to heart. Um, and certainly it's part of what the demon kind of uses against him in their conversations. But even before that, you know, he's, he's really deeply wrestling with this. Did I, in my own selfishness, allow somebody else to die? And I almost, I, I see that ending as, you know, he's talking to the mother the mother says, is she going to die? And he has that kind of, it, it's very subtle, but it's, it's still, it's that sort of, you know, good old American gumption. No, she's not going to die. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and even if he doesn't know all the answers, he's willing to say, I'm going to put myself in, I'm going to sacrifice myself. Okay. Um, and, I, and I see that as a much more heroic, maybe not heroic, but... Well, it, it, I mean, yeah, it's, expi- it's expiation rather than rescue, yes. and that certainly is is a m- more palatable interpretation for me. Yeah, you know, because then it's it's more along the lines of I'm willing to accept the consequences to write something that I think I've done wrong or to have another right. chance, another bite at the apple, pun intended. Um, <laughs> but. You know, not just sort of like, oh, okay, I'm going to, you know, make a decision to play the hero even though I'm in way over my head. Yeah. And, you know, and and we're still left with that, the the messy, okay, he gets his, you know, he seems to be able to respond to the last rites. Right. Um, I mean, 
physically, not verbally, um, but he's squeezing the hand in response to questions. And, you know, so in a sense, there is that, that resolution. Right. Um, that is, if not emotionally satisfying for us, at least it seems to be that things, you know, the, the film, things work out okay. The girl's okay, everybody goes off, and they're fine, and... Well, it's emotionally satisfying in the extent to which it harkens back to the scene where the guy that doesn't believe in possession says that if the victim believes in possession, then... They, yeah. You know, then an exor- then they'll believe in exorcism and it'll work. I don't know as a Protestant that I really buy into the notion of, okay, if you don't get the last rites, is yeah. it really in the is the power really in the sacrament right. or is it in is it in the faith? But I know he believes it, right? And therefore, that is certainly much more sanguine for me as an ending or a satisfying emotional yeah. release that he didn't die in a state of spiritual anguish. Right, uh, believing that he was going to hell. So, all right. Uh, so, um, thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> I, I mean, is that is this a film that you'd recommend for people who haven't seen it? Or, well, this is one of those films that I think is a very good film. Um, I I do not watch it constantly, but I've seen it a number of times. Um, but it's also one of those I have a hard time saying. I'm going to recommend, right? Um, just because I know enough people who would just be overwhelmed by the the dark aspects of the film. So I guess you know, I think it's an incredibly well made film. Obviously, given our conversation, I think it has some very deep themes, and I think it deals with them very seriously. Um, and is I felt I feel it's worth your time, right? Um, I, I don't think this is a you know, a genre hack piece that's just playing around with dangerous things. Um, right. I, I'm right there with you. I um, I mean, I think it's an important film. I think from a, a, a spiritual perspective, it's it's one of the most you know, important films, certainly of the 70s, maybe sure. certainly of, of, of my lifetime. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was writing for Christian Spotlight or... You know, when I write for Christianity Today and I have those sections about, like, what's the objectionable content, I have this sort of shorthand response sometimes if people ask me about that. That's if you have to ask, the answer is probably no. Yeah. And so do I recommend the film? No, not because it's a bad film, but because if you need a recommendation, uh, don't put me on the hook for, <laughs> yeah, he said this was okay. Or, or go see it, you know, which I, this is just an aside, but from the whole realm of Christian criticism, uh, that's one of the reservations that I have, which is these family corners or objectionable content or spiritual ratings, is that if you need someone else to rate the film spiritually for you, rather than describe it and make a decision for yourself, then I think you're you're trying to be like you want to be like Hal and Henry V who is like have someone say the sin beyond my head and I think it's important from a Christian spiritual standpoint to know what your triggers are uh, I guess I will say this I have a lot of triggers with horror I'm very very careful about what horror films that I watch particularly as they relate to 
demons or demonology. I've never seen an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, it, it has less to do with a generic estimation of the quality or validity of any of the works of art and more to do with knowing myself and what mm-hmm. things that I might be, you know, might do me harm or might do me ill. And so I'm as reluctant as I am to recommend or endorse the film or tell anyone else they should see it. I'm equally re- reluctant to condemn this film or any film and say, well, no, you, you know, it or it couldn't be of benefit right. to anyone else. Um, but I mean, in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of the quality of the filmmaking, I, I think that it is, um, an exceptionally well-made film that treats issues of religion, faith, and spirituality seriously and thoughtfully. And the right viewer can benefit from, you know, seeing it and thinking about it, just as the wrong viewer could probably be harmed by it. Sure. All right. I'm good. All right. Thanks, Todd, for your thoughts. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have uh, comments about this episode... Please feel free to drop us a line at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com. You can follow me, Ken, at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield, or read my reviews at One More Film Blog, which is at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!